Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we go to Los Angeles, California to discuss therapeutics for COVID-19. Hi, my name is Nita Kadir. I'm an assistant professor of medicine at UCLA. I'm the co-director of the medical ICU and our pandemic response team. Hi, Nita. A really great uh, privilege to have you on the podcast with us today. Um, Today we'll be discussing therapeutics in COVID-19. So maybe we could start off by asking the question, what got you interested in therapeutics for COVID-19 and why is it such an important topic? In terms of what got me interested, I I don't think I could avoid being interested um, since COVID-19 has been so widespread. It's had such an impact on our health system and on our society as a whole. So I don't don't think there's a a choice in terms of being interested or not. You just had to be interested as an intensivist. Um, In terms of why it is so important, COVID-19 has, of course, been so widespread. It's impacted so many people. It's led to such a dramatic loss of human life. In the United States alone, over half a million people have died. And um, any therapy that's going to be used in such a setting then has the impact, to, it has the potential to impact so many people is going to be important just by virtue of the volume of people it will have an effect on. And because of that, any therapeutic will need to be evaluated very thoughtfully. So at the beginning of the pandemic, we were afflicted by a novel coronavirus, and obviously there were no therapeutics available at the time. Um, so maybe you could tell us what the biggest challenges were um, at the in, in initiation of the pandemic and uh, where we are right now. In the beginning of the pandemic, there was understandably a lot of fear, and with that, the compulsion to just do something, and that do something often meant do something different because COVID-19 is supposedly like nothing we've seen before. Um, there was there was a lot of talk about abandoning some evidence-based practices, and combating that was a big challenge. And you know, even succumbing to my own fears and my own anxieties that was that was a challenge as well. And along with all of that, along with the fear, along with the novelty, along with the anxiety, was just this incredible onslaught of information in peer-reviewed journals and preprints, social media, the late press. Drugs would be in style one minute and then not so the next. Like hydroxychloroquine is a great example of this. We had an EUA issued in March in the United States, and then it was revoked in June and it, it was confusing. It was hard to keep on top of it all. That element has gotten better, but the information overload, I would say, remains a challenge for many. Um, every time I give a talk about COVID-19, even if it were a week ago, I have to do another literature review because inevitably some other paper has come out. So you described the fear, the uncertainty, the chaos at the beginning of the epidemic pretty well. And as you've said, one of the solutions or the solution is to use order, uh, to use an evidence-based approach. And you've gone ahead and done that and uh, gave a grand round talk on what therapeutics have been shown to benefit patients with COVID-19 and which haven't. So let's go ahead and dive into that. And we'll go in the order of dexamethasone, then remdesivir, then tocilizumab. So uh, maybe you could give us the data 
or uh, why these agents have been shown to be of benefit, what their benefit is, and uh, uh, how confident we should be in using them. So steroids were the first therapeutic that demonstrated any benefit in COVID-19. These are, this is a logical therapeutic to look at for COVID-19. It's given to a large number of patients with ARDS. There is some evidence suggesting that its early use in ARDS may reduce ventilator-free days and mortality. Um, It's also used in a lot of ARDS-related conditions like community-acquired pneumonia and shock. Viral illnesses, the data in viral illnesses was a little bit less certain. So in influenza, MERS, SARS, um, there is some data suggesting delayed viral clearance. And in, in influenza specifically, a possible increase in mortality, a possible increase in hospital-acquired infection associated with the use of steroids. There is a lot of heterogeneity um, in these studies in terms of dosing, underlying disease states, timing, duration. So I think these studies on viral pneumonias, uh, these prior studies on viral pneumonias need to be taken with a bit of a grain of salt. So in terms of steroids for COVID-19, the big study that we are all quite familiar with at this point is recovery, multi-center open-label adaptive platform trial that looked at hospitalized patients with COVID-19. Over 6,000 patients were enrolled in the steroid study, um, and the intervention was dexamethasone, 6 milligrams a day for up to 10 days. And there was decreased mortality associated with the use of steroids in patients who are on oxygen. And uh, conversely, though, there was a trend towards increased mortality in patients who are not on O2. A number of studies were happening concurrently that ended up being stopped early based on these results. So Codex, um, for example, REMAP-CAP, both of those were stopped early, but even based on early results, there was suggestion even in those studies that steroids may be of benefit in COVID-19. It's important to remember that this has only been demonstrated to be beneficial in hospitalized patients on supplemental O2, and it's not recommended for patients who are not on O2, and it is not recommended for outpatients. I have been seeing an increase in the use of it for outpatients just anecdotally, and um, I've also unfortunately seen the ill effects associated with that, with people coming in with uh, fungal infections, DKA. So even with this medication, which we have demonstrated benefit, it's important to keep in mind that it's not necessarily for all comers, not for outpatients, not for patients who are not on O2 and still use it thoughtfully. Yeah, I think what really impressed me about the corticosteroids was uh, we in critical uh, care see very few interventions that show benefit. And with the dexamethasone, I think their number needed to treat was 10 for those who are mechanically ventilated uh, versus 33 for those who are just on oxygen, not mechanically ventilated. Maybe you could comment on that. And then also the dosing, because recovery used 6 milligrams um, per day and Codex and Remap used a slightly different regimen. I would assume that based on the evidence that you've seen that uh, most folks are going for the dexamethasone, six milligrams per day. Most most folks do seem to be using six milligrams per day of dexamethasone, and I would say that's been my practice as well. I think it's really unclear what the optimal dosing um, and even duration is with steroids. 
I think that alternate regimens of steroids could potentially be used. We just don't know enough about it yet. In pregnant patients, for example, um, I will typically use methylprednisolone or prednisone as opposed to dexamethasone. But I think there just isn't sufficient data. In terms of interventions that have shown a mortality benefit in critical care, yeah, it was pretty exciting to see that steroids were helpful here because there have been so few. And I think that there may have been even a little bit of an over-exuberance associated with that that extended into the non-ICU population. Interesting. So let's uh, uh, go to remdesivir next and then uh, finish up with tocilizumab because that was pretty exciting and recently came out. So what's the evidence for using remdesivir either in ICU or in hospitalized patients? The remdesivir, I would say I have a little bit less enthusiasm for. There hasn't been any benefit demonstrated in terms of mortality or need for mechanical ventilation. What we do know is that it may improve time to recovery in patients who are on low-flow O2. Um, and in terms of the data supporting this, ACT-1 was a multi-center double-blinded RCT that looked at hospitalized patients. Uh, there were a number of subgroups depending on their severity of illness. They did not find any impact on mortality overall, um, but decreased time to recovery overall um, and a possible decrease in mortality in patients who are on low-flow O2. Based on this, uh, the FDA approved remdesivir in the United States for the treatment of COVID-19. It's recommended for patients who are hospitalized and on low-flow O2. It's not currently recommended for patients who are on high-flow nasal cannula or mechanical ventilation or patients who've had symptoms for over 14 days. The regimen that we've typically been using has been a five-day regimen. Five, five days have been compared to 10 days with no benefits seen with the extending the course to 10 days. We've occasionally used longer courses in patients who are immunocompromised, but for most folks, we have been using five-day regimen. In terms of the groups of patients, low flow versus people who are on high flow, who are on vented, I think another question is what do you do with patients who start out on low flow and then decline and end up intubated? Uh, I don't think we know the answer to that. We've typically been completing the course. Interesting, because um, uh, as you alluded to initially, everyone was being placed on remdesivir, and over the course of the year, um, I've definitely seen a trend where people have just stopped using remdesivir and the mechanically ventilated. Um, are you able to comment on the cost of remdesivir? I mean, obviously, we didn't cover it for the dexamethasone. That's obviously a lot cheaper, uh, but I would imagine the cost played a role in uh, the fact that it's also not providing much benefit. So the cost of remdesivir in the United States is about $3,000 for an entire course. Earlier in the pandemic, supply was a limitation as well. So we were, I would say, you know, we really were restricting it to the use of patients who are on low flow. As the supply has increased, the use of it has increased. The cost um, is, is a concerning issue and um, actually factored in to the WHO's uh, recommendation um, on remdesivir, which is a weak recommendation against its use. One of the reasons 
um, why that was was concerned that the cost um, and resources associated with remdesivir might be diverted away from other evidence-based uh, therapeutic measures and supportive care. Yeah, we've got very limited resources. We need to make sure that we're using them appropriately. So let's get into uh, the IL-6 inhibitors and specifically tocilizumab. This has been pretty exciting work that's come out uh, in the last month or so. So this has been really exciting work that's come out recently. I admittedly am um, not entirely sure what to make of it because there has, has been some inconsistency in clinical trials. Um, on IL-6 inhibitors. So uh, recently, both the recovery and remap cap groups um, published their findings on the use of IL-6 inhibitors for COVID-19. So the remap cap group, um, this was a, for, in both cases, actually, this is a phase where multi-center open-label uh, adaptive platform trials. Um, re the remap cap group looked at tocilizumab and cerilumab in critically ill patients. Uh, their outcomes were 21-day mortality and organ support-free days. And what they found was a decrease in 21-day mortality and an increase in organ support-free days, um, the latter of which was uh, quite compelling. So tocilizumab was associated with 10 organ support free days, um, 11 in the map group, and zero in the placebo group. So I think that's hard to ignore. I am not certain what to make of the time point, 21 days. I don't know that that's sufficient in terms of looking at mortality because at this point we've seen that these patients often have a very long length of stay. Um, recovery um, similarly looked at TOSI and Um They looked at severely ill and critically ill patients, um, and their outcome was 28-day mortality, and they found a decrease in 28 mortality associated with the use of IL-6 inhibitors. So, you know, I, I think while these findings are incredibly exciting, um, there are some caveats to all of that. There were earlier in the pandemic um, multi-center double-blinded RCTs um, that showed no difference in mortality. Um, a little bit more recently, um, Brazilian study, um, this is open label as well on tocilizumab, um, showed no difference in clinical status in patients who received IL-6 inhibitors versus not, and it was actually stopped early for possible harm. Um, so why might this be? So in both remap cap and recovery um, stairways were given to the vast majority of patients along with IL-6 inhibitors. So um, is there a possibility that using steroids and IL-6 inhibitors together uh, is better than just using tocilizumab alone? We don't know. Um, but that it seems likely to factor into all of that. Um, another issue is the high mortality noted in recovery in particular. So um, in recovery, in the patients who were not on the vent, not on high flow nasal cannula, mortality was 22% in the placebo group, 19% um, in intervention. In the uh, vented group, 48% versus 47%. Now, overall, all of these rates of mortality are significantly higher than what I see at my institution. And uh, mortality, of course, 
has varied from institution to institution. But when I see these findings, um, I have to wonder about the generalizability. If the mortality in a clinical trial is significantly higher at baseline than the mortality that I see in my patient population, you have to think at least that the magnitude of benefit from that measure, from tocilizumab or cerilizumab, will likely be less. And because of that, I think we have to think about the, you know, side, side effects, adverse reactions even more thoughtfully. Um, I think another factor um, that plays into this in terms of my still a little bit hesitancy to use IL-6 inhibitors is that we don't know the more intermediate and longer-term outcomes. Um, now, I mentioned earlier that patients have a pretty long length of stay, particularly the mechanical ventilation, mechanically ventilated patients. But also it's important to keep in mind that the uh, half-life of IL-6 inhibitors of both TOSI and Cerulimab is pretty long, 10 to 14 days. So um, if you give it, it's not like you can just reverse course and by stopping it the next day, you're not going to feel the effects of that. Um, so I think there's there's a lot to keep in mind there. Um, I think the takeaway from both recovery and remap cap is that early use of IL-6 inhibitors might be of benefit in critically ill patients with COVID-19. Um, the timing, I think, also warrants mention. So in remap cap, patients had to be randomized within 24 hours of initiating organ support. Um, and patients in recovery were enrolled on average two days into their hospitalization. So I think early use is, is important to mention. Uh, the risk-benefit ratio likely changes the longer somebody has been in the hospital in terms of the, you know, the immunocompromised adverse effects, um, the nosocomial infections that could be associated with that. So, uh, you know, I am admittedly Still on the fence a little bit, but I would say that the findings of both remap cap and recovery probably support the early use of IL-6 inhibitors in critically ill patients. Yeah, I think on the fence is appropriate, especially given the data. Maybe you could comment on the sample sizes because, as you said, um, recovery enrolled 4,000 patients, remap 800, whereas those earlier studies only had uh, sample sizes of 200 and 160. Um, were those early studies uh, powered to detect an adequate difference, um, or is it the case that recovery was adequately powered to address the question? The, the difference in sample size is a consideration, certainly. Um, and these early studies, at least at least one of a couple of them, actually were stopped early. Um, and, and so I think sample size does factor into all of this. Um, I think another difference is that um, that's important to point out is that there earlier there were double-blinded RCTs. The, the STONE study on tocilizumab was double-blinded, um, and none of these more recent studies have been. Um, and I think there is some risk of bias associated with that. So, yeah, the sample size is, of course, um, more makes, makes remap cap and recovery more compelling, but the open-label nature um, I think does need to be taken into account. No, definitely. I think those are important factors. And then you mentioned the fact that 
using the therapy earlier seemed to uh, make more sense based on the data presented. And uh, in the table that you presented, uh, it showed that uh, in the intervention group, um, mortality was 47% versus 80% for those who are ventilated. So maybe you could comment on that. Uh, you, you know, what's the, I mean, a 1% mortality difference, uh, if, if it's true and if we were to believe it, in those who are ventilated uh, would make a number needed to treat of 100, which is really high given the cost of the medication. Um, whereas when you look at the uh the, the, the primary analysis where they show a um, 5% decrease in progression to mechanical ventilation, um, the end, uh, the number needed to treat there is 20. So it would appear that starting these patients on um, oxygen, when they're still on oxygen, not yet mechanically ventilated, or if they're having increasing or rapidly increasing oxygen requirements, those are the patients who we should start on tocilizumab rather than uh, the ones who are already uh, on the ventilator. What would your response to that be? I think, um, like a lot of things in medicine, it, it depends, right? So these folks who are on rapidly increasing, uh, who have rapidly increasing O2 requirements often do end up on the ventilator um, pretty quickly. And I think that intubation practices also vary from one center to the other. So I, I don't think... Um, I don't think um, restricting this to non-mechanically ventilated patients um, would necessarily be appropriate based on that, based on, again, like the rapidly increasing requirement for O2, those patients often end up on the vent early in their course and intubation practices vary. Um, I, I think that in general, there are probably subgroups of patients who benefit in subgroups that um, that experience harm, and I think we do need to do a better job of teasing all of that out. Um, I don't think I, I, I do think it is particularly challenging when it comes to um, patients on high flow, non-invasive versus mechanical ventilation because of differences in practices, and because this is all a spectrum, and sometimes there's very little separating that patient who's on a high amount of high flow versus the patient who is intubated. Gotcha. And then um, in terms of any other therapies that have been shown to be of benefit in those with COVID-19, we've covered dexamethasone, we've covered remdesivir, we've covered tocilizumab. Anything else before we move on to those that uh, have either been proven to be harmful or of no benefit? Uh, I mean, there there are a number of therapies that are under investigation that I think um, show potential promise, but nothing clear just yet. So baricitinib, JAK inhibitor, um, in the ACT-2 trial, uh, baricitinib plus remdesivir was um, superior to remdesivir alone in terms of time to recovery in patients who are on high-flow nasal cannula or non-invasive. Um, and based on that, an EUA was issued for hospitalized patients on O2 for baricitinib. Um, the ACT-4 trial is currently ongoing, um, and that is comparing dexamethasone plus remdesivir versus baricitinib plus remdesivir. So it'll be interesting to see those results. Um, SARS-CoV-2 neutralizing antibodies have been in the news quite a bit recently. Um, data is currently available for outpatients only. Um, there is a cocktail made by Regeneron and one made by Eli Lilly, um, and um, both have shown a reduction in viral load in outpatients. 
um, bomlanivimab, um, the Eli Lilly drug, uh, did um, uh, seem to decrease incidence of COVID-related ED visits or hospitalizations. But when uh, bomlanivimab was combined with editisivimab, these are hard to pronounce, um, compared to bamlanivimab alone um, or placebo, there was a reduction in viral load and ED or hospital visits only seen in the combination group and not in the bamlanivimab group alone. So I think those findings need to be taken with a grain of salt. Um, convalescent plasma, um, the, you know, overriding the the majority of the evidence suggests that there is not a lot of benefit from its use, so no improvement in mortality or progression of disease in hospitalized patients. Um, but more recently, the infant COVID-19 study, uh, which multi-center double-blinded RCT that looked at elderly patients with mild disease, um, they used high titer plasma only. Um, there is decreased progression to severe disease in that group. So that, uh, you know, I think is, uh, that's a compelling finding that probably warrants further uh, explanation. I don't think it can be recommended in all comers, but perhaps there is something to identifying specific groups that may benefit um, or something to the utilization of high-titer plasma alone. Gotcha. And then, uh, and I'm also glad that you got to pronounce those names rather than I did, so kudos <laughs> to you. Um, so let's chat about um, hydroxychloroquine um, and ibamectin because uh, they created quite a stir when they came out, and um, a lot of patients were put on hydroxychloroquine with uh, potentially adverse effects. So as of 2021, what's the data for uh, hydroxychloroquine, Kaletra, and ibamectin? So in terms of hydroxychloroquine, um, I, I feel like we're beating a dead horse at this point. And there's been an overwhelming amount of data at this point demonstrating that there's no impact on mortality, initiation of mechanical ventilation, clinical status, symptom severity. Um, there's no utility in its use for prophylaxis. Um, and there's a tremendous body of evidence at this point where I think it's I think we can conclusively say that hydroxychloroquine unfortunately does not benefit patients with COVID-19, whether they're hospitalized, non-hospitalized, or for prophylaxis. Um, lopinavir, ritonavir was uh, fortunately less uh, politicized and less hyped up. This has been studied in hospitalized patients by the recovery group and also by um, the WHO solidarity study. Um, there's been no impact demonstrated on mortality, initiation of mechanical ventilation, or time to discharge. Ivermectin, <laughs> um, Ivermectin, I, I suspect will be the next hydroxychloroquine, um, but to be fair, um, while there is a large body of evidence demonstrating that hydroxychloroquine is not beneficial, um, the same body of evidence does not exist for Ivermectin. Um, there are, uh, you know, there are a small number of studies that have been published, um, mostly small RCTs, many preprint, um, and more recently, just hot off the presses in JAMA, um, 
her CT was published um, that demonstrated no uh, benefit from the use of ivermectin in terms of um, in, in terms of uh, time to resolution in mild cases. Um, prior studies, there some might argue that there may have been a signal towards benefit, but there there is. Um, there's, there's very low certainty of evidence so far. So I think continuing to study it certainly is warranted, but we definitively need more data before it's used on a wide scale. If benefit is demonstrated from the use of ivermectin in some group, whether it's inpatients, outpatients, or for prevention, it would be amazing because it's widely available, it's cheap. But um, based on what we have so far, there's really insufficient evidence to um, to support its use. And Anita, maybe you could comment on uh, the vitamins. It seems as though uh, every new illness needs a new vitamin. Um, and there was a lot of push for vitamin C and thiamine for septic shock, and that data was uh, largely unconvincing. Um, I think there's been some recent data for uh, the vitamin C and thiamine in COVID-19 as well, which showed no benefit. So, yeah, I think with vitamins, again, it's a lot of, it's, it's, there's, I think, some wishful thinking involved in that because, you know, with, with vitamin C, for example, the side effect profile is, is pretty low. Um, it's cheap. It's widely available, but, um, we have not, <laughs> there's been no benefit demonstrated from its use in COVID-19. Um, and at this point, there have been, multiple studies um, that have looked again at vitamin C, thiamine, steroids uh, for septic shock um, that have been negative, including most recently the Victus trial published its findings. So let's look to the future. You mentioned that every time you have to give a talk, uh, it seems to be weekly, you've got to go and uh, review the literature because there's new uh, um, studies coming out uh, every day. Uh, what have you seen that you're interested to um, review in the next couple of weeks, couple of months, uh, that are promising candidates for um, COVID-19 infection and therapy? I am excited to see the Act 4 results um, pertaining to baricitinib. Um, so baricitinib plus remdesivir versus um, steroids plus remdesivir. Um, I, I think initial findings from Act 2 were intriguing, um, and I'm definitely interested to see more there. Um, I don't think there's sufficient use right now to support its use outside of the context of a clinical trial, but um, I think um, there is hope for some benefit, so we'll, we'll see what Act 4 um, shows us. Um, I think the... Um, the infant COVID study regarding convalescent plasma, um, I think, was also an, an intriguing finding um, and perhaps some more personalized clinical trials on convalescent plasma um, may give us more information, and I know there are some ongoing. So, um, you know, in either case, again, I don't think that there's sufficient evidence to support their use outside of the context of clinical trials, but... Um, I am interested to see results of currently ongoing clinical trials for both of those agents. 
yeah, we will definitely be intrigued and look out for them as well. So, Nita, um, you've had a fair amount of time to prepare for this podcast, and um, we may not have covered a topic or uh, an issue that uh, was pretty relevant. Maybe you could go ahead and just share with our audience anything that we haven't discussed and leave our audience with any concluding comments. I think it's important to remember that while you know, while investigations for therapeutics are ongoing and, you know, we're hopeful that we'll find something in addition to steroids, possibly remdesivir and IL-6 inhibitors that benefit our patients, the mainstay of care is most likely never going to be a therapeutic. The mainstay of care remains supportive in nature. I think that um, that's underestimated in a lot of ways. Um, good supportive care in the ICU, good supportive care for ARDS is labor-intensive. It's, um, it's, uh, it's, it's multidisciplinary, um, and it requires a lot of attention towards essentially avoiding com- the complications of critical illness, so supporting the body, um, ventilating um, with low tidal volume ventilation, um, mobilizing patients, um, ensuring um, adequate nutrition, all of these things that don't sound perhaps as exciting as saying like, oh, I'm going to give this drug and this patient's going to get better. But all, all, of, all of these supportive measures, proning, lung protective ventilation, avoiding complications, all of that together is most likely going to have a far greater impact on your patient than any therapeutic that we find. I agree. Um, I think you've done an outstanding job in uh, reviewing the therapeutics for us and highlighting the fact that critical care is about preventing the complications, supporting the patients, and it's a labor of love. Um, You take care. Uh, you, You did a really outstanding job. Thank you. A big thank you to Dr. Kadir. And a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.